What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody. Everyone's favorite podcast, dissecting all things history, philosophy, mythology, pop culture, and so forth. Very excited for this episode. Really, really geared up, and I'm ready to talk Handmaid's Tale Season 2. Yes, we are so pumped to be here with you, wrapping up uh, the season finale of uh, the second installment of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Uh, We were both huge fans of this show in the first season and even more so in the second season. Um, I thought after, you know, adapting a book to almost its full completion in the first season, we had no idea where they were going to go with this second round. And I've just been amazed at how much they have expanded this world and brought true depth to these characters and relevance to our times. So it's really exciting to be talking about this with you uh, this evening. Uh, it goes without saying, there are going to be some heavy, heavy spoilers for season two and season one of The Handmaid's Tale on this episode. So if you are not caught up or if you have not watched yet, now is the time. Uh, go back and watch those episodes before you rejoin us and then come in and join the conversation. So Handmaid's Tale is a story of the handmaids in a world in which mass infertility has caused the collapse of America as we know it, and a new military autocratic theocracy called Gilead has arisen, and they have enslaved all women and relegated the women who are fertile, e.g. able to bear children, into the roles of handmaids to be sex slaves for the men who are powerful called the commanders to bear their children. It's a Hulu original. It's based off of a book by Margaret Margaret Atwood uh, called The Handmaid's Tale, and it just concluded with its second season. Um, A few things I'd like to just get out of the way at the beginning, if that's okay with you, Laura. Please, yeah. So I started last week asking questions about change, and I think... The Handmaid's Tale is the perfect avenue to go to the next phase of that discussion. Is yeah. What happens when a character changes? What happens now when a society changes? And how can creating a world tell us more about society writ large? So there are several main players in The Handmaid's Season 2. There is June, a.k.a. of Fred, who is the main protagonist She is the handmaid. She is 
Commander Fred's sex slave. There's Commander Fred, who is one of the higher-ups of the new Republic of Gilead, their wife, Serena. And uh, Serena, as we learn, is one of the major intellectual and spiritual creators and drivers of the transition out of America as we know it, the constitutional republic that we have, and into the military autocratic theocracy of Gilead. So one question that I have in theme of change, and it may not, it's not really what people would automatically ask after watching Handmaid's Season 2, but so here is my question that I'd like to pose to you as my entry point wrapping up and thinking of Season 2. Does Gilead change Fred? Wow. That's my first question. Okay. And the reason why that's significant to me, as a sort of cisgendered normal white male, I want to know, can someone who is good become someone who is capable of horrible atrocities? Is there a transition that we see in the character Fred in season two was there once a good man there or was that was he always a sexist power hungry egomaniacal narcissist that he is in season two wow that's i mean it's a big question and it's something i wasn't expecting but i'm glad you asked it um i'm glad you asked it and my instinct here in answering this question is yes gilead changes fred um, in the flashbacks that we see of Serena's life, uh, Fred is a very different type of character. He is a little bit, quote-unquote, weaker in her presence than he becomes once he gains power in Gilead, which gives more and more power to men in its hierarchy. Um, so so there is a an element of yes, but there's also an element, I think, of no, I think uh, a huge part of what Gilead does is galvanize uh, the sort of dormant uh, biases, the dormant hatred, the dormant anger that exists in every character in this uh, in this play uh, that has has lain so has lain asleep for so long. Uh, the same kind of way that a Donald Trump could rise to power and awaken so many of of people like me into realizing that there are people in this country who feel this way about Muslims or feel this way about black people or feel this way about women. Gilead gives a mainstream voice to people who harbor this uh, this dormant hatred against women, this dormant feeling of elitism or that they have been uh, you know stripped of power that they deserve. Um, or you know, can even galvanize the Aunt Lydia's of the world who feel as though they have been marginalized and then turn that anger against other women. So I'm really actually very excited that you started with this question about Fred because I think it's not just about Fred, it's about the entire world. Is America changed by Gilead or was America already Gilead waiting to awaken? Yeah, so Fred says something interesting in one of my favorite scenes of the season finale. And this is the scene in which the father of Eden, who is just in the previous episode, had been executed with her lover for cheating on, you know, Nick, the husband. 
So she is drowned to death and the father comes and then the father admits that it was he who turned his own daughter in. And he is sort of having this moment with the commander in their home and it's all very formal and it's all very thank you for your this and that. And the end of that scene, June, you know, pretty much gives Fred the business and Fred slaps her. June slaps him back and he grabs her by the face and he says that women are the misery of all men, all of them. And I think of that contrasting to what we see in the flashbacks earlier in this season, I forget which episode, in which Serena is booed off of a college stage because she is trying to make the intellectual argument that God wants women to be subservient so they can bear children. And that's the reason that there's infertility happening. And Serena, Serena gets shot. You know, someone decides that they want to try to kill her, which she doesn't die. It just ends up making it impossible for her to have children. So now we know why Serena's infertile. And Fred kind of wants to give up. Fred's just like, you know, we we can't do this. You're hurt. We've gone too far. And Serena looks at him and is like, you're weak. We're going to keep this fight going. Serena knows the value of her attempted assassination for their political movement. Fred doesn't. And in that moment where Fred and Serena talk in the flashback, we see that Serena is his strength. Serena gives him the will to carry on, despite the fact that she nearly died for their cause. Yeah. Flash forward now to the finale, and it's, you know, women are the bane of all men's existence. So my question in trying to trace the change in Fred is to me, is there an argument the show is making that power is inherently corruptive? Once you have it, even though you realize you wouldn't have had it for your wife, once you, except for your wife, once you have it, will you then use it, uh, be corrupted by it, and then ultimately become a worse person because of it? Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go with this, because the change in Fred's character comes from the fact that the roles are reversed between him and his wife. Uh, even Serena views the imbalance in their relationship with her as the leader as immoral. And once that becomes the status quo uh, of the man uh, truly being the the intellectual uh, and moral and powerful superior of the woman in Gilead, where that is ordained by God, um, that galvanizes him to make those decisions against her. It galvanizes him to take her finger it causes him to uh, to punish her in ways that he wouldn't have before because he has received that kind of corruptive influence. But again, that that comes back to would another person in this situation have interpreted it differently, have uh, shown forgiveness, have shown mercy, or was that something that just lay deep within Fred, a resentment that he had against Serena and all women? I don't know, but I think we are shown two different types of power in the finale. Yes. We are shown the type of overt power, the power that Fred and the other commanders have. They can deem that if a woman reads from the Bible that they can remove one of her fingers as punishment for the transgression. They can take teenagers who are just hot for each other and banging and drown them. Right, And this is a, a overt form of power, a form of power that is 
very direct and very authoritarian and very overbearing. And in the instrumentation of that power, I would say if we reference Frederick Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, Frederick Nietzsche said that there are only two types of morality, ruling morality and slave morality. Mm. And in this, we see Fred embody that principle. There is the morality of the rulers and then the morality of the slaves. And he is a ruler, hence chopping off of a woman's finger is not wrong. Enslaving people in the colonies to do the dirty work of society, not wrong. Having sex slaves in your home to bear your children, not wrong. Why? Because I'm the ruler and I can, right? On the contrast to that, we see a very other form of power in this. And I would say it's completely divorced from the type of ruler and slave morality we see of the commanders. Mm -hmm. That is the power of compassion. Yeah. And that is a completely unique and different. It's not political. It's not institutionalized. But we see that in the sort of sort of pan-feministic element of the Marthas, the handmaids, and the, the, the commander's wives working in concert to try to make any type of dent in this world that they can. So this gets kind of into my lens for this episode and for the season as a whole and where I think uh, this season really takes hold of us and where it tells us kind of where Gilead is going. Uh, and it comes back to change, right? So my question is, how does change happen? Uh, how does a, a changing society happen? And can one individual's change, can one character change, affect change in a society? So I'm zooming in quite particularly on the experience of June, but also on Serena, and then on what you're saying with this idea of a pan-feminist partnership or um, collective. And uh, the word I want to keep coming back to is intersectionality. Um, There's a quote by a personal hero of mine, Madeleine Albright. She's a former Secretary of State and ambassador to the UN. It's a very famous quote. She said at a conference once, Quote, there is a special place in hell for women who don't help other women, end quote. And you've probably heard this before, and you've probably heard it, uh, you know, sounded off pretty glibly. But I think in many ways, it's a huge thesis of season two of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, And this episode, this finale, really ties it up neatly, in my opinion. We start by hearing June reflecting on the death of Eden, a character she cared very little about, an Econo wife who was living in the house of the father of June's child, who she'd been sleeping with secretly. Yeah, let's clarify that for those plot-wise. June gets pregnant, gives birth. It is June and Nick who is the I, who is the soldier, the personal soldier for Commander Waterford of Fred. So they have an illicit affair, which produces a child, which everyone is pretending is the commander's child. Is Commander child. Waterford's. Yeah. Um, but Eden, who died in the previous episode, was a, you know a different class than Serena or June or uh, Rita, the Martha of that household. She was a lesser class, but still afforded some you know level of piety 
and uh, respect because she was a wife, because she could have sex with her husband and try to have a baby. Um, but as they're reflecting on her death because of her own you know, childish wishes, a 15-year-old girl who wanted to run off with her boyfriend, June is looking at the laundry blowing in the wind, at the uniforms left behind, at the gray clothes that Eden used to wear, at the red clothes that June wears, at the green clothes that Rita the Martha wears, and at the blue clothes that Serena Joy, the wife of the commander, wears. And how when all of us leave, all we leave behind is a uniform. And that's what defines what we are as women in a society that striates us and that strives to tear us apart and keep us from working together. But as this episode and this season unfolds, we begin to see those lines break down through the loss of Eden, through the companionship over the idea of the word of God, of sharing text, of sharing some form of communication and freedom, people start to collaborate across their different tribes, across their sections, and form an intersectional feminist bond that allows them to get things done to affect change. That continues through this entire episode. I am glad that you brought that up. A few things that I think are pivotal change moments in the beginning, the early part of that episode. Yeah. Um, where I think we see the three characters that need to work in unison in order to get Nicole, uh, June and Nick's baby out of Gilead, which is the conclusion of the episode. Those three characters that need to work in concert are really Rita, Serena and June. Yes. And so we see some transition moments early in. We see Rita realizing she should have helped Eden. Yes. Regretting the fact that she didn't actually do anything to assist this character. And she sees that uh, June is willing to stand up to the commander. And she realizes there's value in protecting others. There's the moment in which Rita is looking upon Nick and June and the baby and we can the camera flashes to her and we can see in that moment Rita has made up her mind to help someone. She won't let someone else go unprotected if she has the power to do it. And even though we don't see what she does to orchestrate the escape of of June and Nicole, she realizes now she has to act that there is value in compassion and power in compassion. Absolutely. And I want to just give a moment of recognition to the actress who portrays Rita. Um, that moment when she is watching uh, Nick and June together, watching from the doorway, seeing that beautiful triad of a family unit. Even though we haven't seen Rita's backstory, we know something is going on. And so I want to give some kudos to the actress there whose name I don't know, um, and her ability to portray that incredible conflict uh, that has to be masked in a society like Gilead that keeps women's uh, emotions so private. And I'd say the pivotal moment that causes Serena to act is not, in my view, the moment where she goes in front of the commanders and they chop off her finger out of punishment for dare reading the Bible in front of them. I'd say the moment happens before then. Absolutely. So uh, June confronts Serena, you know, in the, the garden, and she presents Serena with the Bible. 
and they essentially have a debate over whether Nicole is safe or not. Serena loses this debate to Jude pretty handedly. But I don't think that's the moment in which I think Serena switches and really internalizes how much danger her baby Nicole, the baby she shares with June, is really in. I would argue Serena's pivot moment where she realizes she must act happens in the meeting with Eden's father. Mm, Okay. And it happens in the moment in which we find out Eden's father turned Eden into the authorities. When Eden ran away with her boyfriend, she went to their farm. And when they got there, the father essentially called the cops and had them come and get arrested and ultimately executed. Yeah. And the moment happens when we see in both Serena and both June's face the disgust that a father would sell out their daughter to the powerful, to the government, to the military theocracy and autocracy. And then they realize that if a father can pick up the phone and get a daughter executed, no one's safe. No one's safe, yeah. And that's when the argument that June made to Serena previous to that scene sinks in, in my view, and Serena decides it's time to act. It's time to change. It's time to do something. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I want to rewind just a moment to that scene in the greenhouse because I think the genius of this episode is the way that every single scene is layered upon the scene that came before it, that every character change and nuance comes from its influences from what came just before and what's to come just after. And there's an interesting line that uh, June throws out at Serena when they're in the greenhouse, when they're talking about Nicole slash Holly's fate. And June says, are you going to keep her locked up here like an orchid? Uh, They're in a greenhouse, so it's a significant moment because that's Serena's safe space. It's where she is in total control, and she is completely enclosed in this controlled environment where the truth is basically kept out where sunlight is refracted through glass and you can be safe in your own little corner. And it's like Rapunzel, right? She casts Serena as the witch, keeping that orchid child, keeping that child under control and under wraps and completely uh, divorced from the idea of freedom and being able to make her own choices. And because June lays that groundwork, because June says this safe space that you made is actually a prison, that is what lays that groundwork for Serena to be so affected by what comes next with Eden's father. Everything is kind of accordioned on top of each other as we see that all of these women are imprisoned. And what we know about Serena is that she knows how to layer, construct, and make arguments. She knows how to organize people and affect and create change. There would be no Gilead without Serena. Absolutely, yeah. The tragedy of that character is she is not redeemed at all, in my view. Right, There is no redemption for someone that created a theocratic society that is as oppressive and as horrific as Gilead. But the irony is that she created her own prison, and now that she's in it, she can't stomach to pass it on to another that she loves. Yeah, she created her own prison and she sits there and tries to make it pretty. 
it's her greenhouse, right? She, she sits there and says, Gilead is amazing and it's everything I've ever wanted and I'm surrounding myself with flowers and it's great. But when people confront her and say, you aren't free, then she starts to crack. When she visits Canada, they're like, oh, that's a cute little hobby that you garden. Wouldn't you like to get out? She starts to crack. Uh, she's a fascinating character because you're right. She's not redeemed. But she crawls toward it so much that she does elicit in us an incredible amount of sympathy. And I think that her character change is the most drastic, the most dramatic throughout this season. Uh, and she is the one with the most power to affect change in Gilead, right? Well, I don't know about that. To because, an ex- yeah, well, yeah. Because I think what we learned in this episode is that we hoped she'd be able to go to Gilead and true, change it. True. But what we also realized is Gilead is beyond redemption. The commander would rather mutilate his wife than allow her to read a book. True. Yeah. You know, so I think that goes back to my original point. Like does, does Fred become a worse person because of Gilead? And I would say, yeah. Yeah. And because he finally gets a taste to be a total authoritarian dictator there's zero chance he is ever going to give that back because that power to him is more important than the holiness. It's more important than correcting the wrongs that created infertility. It's more important than all of the rhetoric when he starts to see others as pure means to his power. Yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. Serena's change is that she starts to see value in people in and of themselves. Yeah, yeah. By by the fact that she became close to being an actual mother led her to love something and someone else and realize that, like, I need to protect that thing that I love, which is why the baby is named Nicole. Yeah. To honor Serena's choice to and let sacrifice. the baby go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think you're totally right. And this is the point in the episode where we start to see the tribes begin to cross. We start to see them blend. Uh, you know, we see a scene with uh, four of the handmaids. So we have June, Janine, uh, Emily, and Alma walking together along the river and sharing secrets. And they're all connected by this grief, by this shock at the loss of Eden. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think I even have to tell you that Eden represents the Uh, Garden of Eden in the Bible, Um, we have this kind of this shared loss among all of the women in this episode of paradise, this shared loss of some representation of innocence. Uh, And then they look upon this woman that none of them really cared for a couple weeks ago and say, God, she was brave for trying to read the Bible. God, we're really going to miss her. It's too bad that she and her lover couldn't be together. I hope they're together in heaven. And she loved someone so much, she yeah. was willing to die rather than repent. Absolutely. She got to, in, one, in, in her own way, Eden, who is, uh, you know, the Garden of Eden, which is where Adam and Eve lived, where Eve created sin. You know, Eden got to create a sin, but in, that, in the eyes of Gilead, create a sin. But in that way, she got to live more than so many of the other women did. Yeah. And I think that she is... she chose to eat the apple. That is the catalyst that helps propel them all to act. Yeah. And what we realize... I'm sorry, did I cut you off? Oh, no, I was just going to say that as they're reflecting on this person who's not part of their tribe, who's not a handmaid, 
they're talking about an Econo wife as if they have the same level of solidarity with her as they would with Emily or Janine. Uh, just quick question, because I'm not sure about something. You've used the term Econo wife. Yeah. Is that a reference to like, I don't know, what does that mean? I don't know what it means. That's okay. So Eden would be considered an Econo wife because you see she's married to Nick, but she's not wearing blue. So she's definitely not the same social class as those like high caliber families. And the family that June stayed with when she was trying to escape, the ones that got taken out for helping her, those were Econo people, uh, the ones who wear gray and just kind of live their lives and go to church. That's just a, a term for that low class who's not really filtered into um, the handmaid uh, or Martha uh, level of society because they are, um, they're just not as high class, essentially. Uh, is that a term from the show? Did I miss that? It's or definitely that... from the book. I don't know if they actually okay. say it on the show, but that's what they are. Okay, cool. Sorry. I just had I'm to sorry if that was confusing. You, well, you said it twice, and so I was like, <laughs> uh, I should I know? Is that a reference to something else? Anyway, moving on. The one thing that I would like to kind of extrapolate on um, and add, I think we are in the theme of change. We are seeing a uh, a world that is currently progressing with less freedom, more authoritarianism. Yeah. Um, a world in which anger, ignorance, and hate are a everyday part of our lives, whether they're coming from the president or whether you open your Twitter feed and you see that. And I think the lesson that I gain from looking at the intersectional movement of compassion by the commander's wives, the Marthas, and the handmaids, all in the effort to save one baby. That's all that gets really saved. Yeah. One baby, all of the work, and they saved one. And there are still plenty, countless others that are going to be born, that are going to live, and that are going to die under this horrific regime. It reminds me that compassion is a form of political power. Yeah. When people decide to act out of goodness and kindness collectively, when they decide that based upon that, that they have to do something, tremendous change can happen. And maybe it takes five dozen people acting out of compassion and you save one life. Mm -hmm. That one life being saved is one life saved, which is good in and of itself. And I yeah. think that lesson that I gained from the finale of Handmaid Season 2 is something that is, I think, going to stick with me. And it reminds me of our mission of the perfect story. And I often wonder, to what extent does politics and mythology and narrative need to intertwine? And I think they do. If you want to tell a story that matters, and I think matters in a substantial way, matters in that it can inspire people to be better people. I can't think of a better example in recent memory than Handmaid's season two. Right. And there's a level of, um, of shock and grief and awe that this show inspires in us. Um, you know, I, there's, there hasn't been a single episode in this season that I haven't, you know, sobbed so hard I couldn't breathe. Um, but there's something about being jolted with that much emotion, being, um, placed so palpably and so powerfully in the shoes of another, whether I identify with them 
as uh, you know, a member of my gender or a member of my race or a member of my nationality or my religion, uh, being placed in their shoes is so valuable um, in forging my empathy with other people, which I think is one of the major reasons that storytelling exists and endures. And so Handmaid's Tale deserves incredible props for being able to uh, to awaken parts of ourselves uh, that we didn't know existed and awaken, uh, you know, sympathy and empathy for others of other groups. And for it to do, you know, what it's doing to me with its characters and within its characters, I think, makes it even more of a powerful story. So I was just saying that the handmaids walking along the river started to empathize for someone outside of their tribe. The next scene is two wives, two high-level, high-class, rich, powerful white women who have privilege, who have babies, who have servants, who have husbands, talking to each other about what they can do to make the future better for their daughters, knowing that whatever modicum of power that they have in their rank and in their numbers is worth a shot. Uh, you know, they say to each other in that scene, you know, we have to do the best that we can for our sons and our daughters. And they show up at the Gilead Council. They show up in front of their husbands and make a protest. Maybe it's not entirely successful, but they try. And Serena does something incredibly brave and incredibly badass and heretical and pulls out a Bible and starts reading. She breaks the law in front of her husband and in front of all of their husbands. And the wives can't stand up for her. But goddamn if she's not brave. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm glad that you brought that scene up. So yeah. this will be hard to describe via podcast form, but I want those who have seen it to go back and rewatch. And I want everyone that when they rewatch pay attention to what the camera is doing in particular in the Serena scenes. Yes. Because, and how the set design works in concert with the camera. So the scene in which Serena sort of hatches a plot to confront the commanders to try to at least allow girls to read the Bible. They're not asking for anything else other than that. Let them read the word of God. That scene is shot where every scene is in perfect symmetry. Whatever is on the left side of the frame is on the right, down to the point where in the middle there is just a little space in the middle. They have it framed so they have both of the, the wives, then they have their servants, then they have the artwork. And the camera breaks from the symmetry the moment that Serena decides to start mentioning, by the way, maybe we should do something about this. And they talk essentially in code, but both of them know exactly what they mean. Yeah. That the wives aren't happy and that the wives want girls to be able to read the Bible. And one of the things that The Handmaid's Tale does so extraordinarily is whatever layer you want to uh, engage with the material you can engage, whether that is dealing with the symbolism of what these characters mean, but also just asking yourself in each scene, what is the camera trying to tell me? And there's so many little things, like when Serena, after getting her pinky finger chopped off, is on the way home, and we see Afred walking to the door to open it, 
but we see the camera from outside the door and her frame of view is distorted through the door's stained glass, making it look like there's multiple Uffreds. And as she opens the door, the camera pains to the door and it watches Serena and we see her vision get distorted through that same frame of that glass door window, suggesting a sameness that they're both equally as broken. Yeah. That they're both distorted, that they're both trying to find themselves in their centers. And then that way, the camera's telling us that of Fred slash June and Serena are more equals. And they end this episode as equals. Yeah. This this moment that you're talking about with the door frame, it does a few things, right? It shows us distorted women who are seen only through their uniform, who are seen only through their image. Um, but it also shows us women who are imprisoned. It shows us a framing device for women that contains all of their multitudes and their multivariate personalities. And then in the next moment... Serena and June get to share a scene where they touch, they hold hands, and they recognize something in each other despite everything that they have been through, despite every horrible thing they've done to each other, particularly that Serena has done to June, enslaving and raping her. Um, Despite all of this and through all of this, they recognize something in each other worth fighting for, which allows them to end this uh, this part of their lives as equals, which allows them to make sacrifices for each other and give each other gifts, uh, which is remarkable. It's really, it's it's miraculous. There is a level of grace in that that you can't expect from an ordinary person to forgive and to sacrifice for one another. And that's kind of what intersectional feminism calls for, right? That's kind of what Uh, resistance and change calls for is a level of grace and forgiveness of each other that is not ordinary, that is extraordinary. And watching these two characters go through that is a miracle. And it tells us that the cure to authoritarian, uh, oppressive, and horrific regimes is compassion for other humans. Yeah, and it is to base a movement on that. And it is to try to help and and guide and care for as many people as you can. Um, because if we might ask ourselves, what can we do against the rise of authoritarianism in America, where we have people in power who are openly sympathetic, courting, and enjoying the support of neo-Nazis? You know, we ask ourselves, what can we do amidst this? where we are worried that America will become the Republic of Gilead, which is the ultimate point of The Handmaid's Tale. Right. That America isn't that far from this, that we could become this. And so if you're worried at all, the best thing that we can all do is to show some freaking love for each other and some compassion and some sympathy and some empathy. And if we can all do that a little better than we did yesterday and work on that every day, we get further and further and further away from the fucking hate. And we don't have to do it alone, right? So what the final sequence of this uh, this episode in this series shows us is that we have to lean on each other and we have to be there for each other. Uh, just 
despite or regardless of whatever lines people have drawn in the sand between our differences. Uh, the final moments of this episode shows a relay race against time, shows levels of women and tribes of women working across those lines, trusting each other and putting and sticking their necks out for each other. Uh, Rita, who at the beginning of this episode regretted not working hard enough to try and help Eden, burns down a house so that June can get out amongst a network of other Marthas who have been thinking, how else can we help resist this nation and who can we help and what can we do that might even be a drop in the bucket? And there's a scene where June is getting out of the estate. She's getting out of the Waterford house when Serena sees her trying to escape. She leaves the greenhouse, her prison, and tries to stop her. And there's a moment where there's a wife and a handmaid and a Martha, all witness to each other and witness to an extraordinary display of grace. Uh, Serena, who is heartbroken at the idea of losing Nicole, recognizes that she has to let her go to give her a better life. And June, seeing that power and that love in Serena, lets her hold her baby with no fear that she's going to run off or that she's going to betray her, knowing that she is going to give her back and let Nicole go. And then Martha watches, knowing that this is a display of something truthful. And then we watch, you know, June scatter and run across the countryside, handing her baby to Martha after Martha as they get her through trial after trial and run her across Gilead to get her out, something that would not be possible if people were in it for themselves. They have to be in it for each other, women helping other women. Can I ask you a follow-up question to that point? Please. When you call it a moment of grace, yes. could you tell me what you mean by that? Grace, uh, <laughs> so grace is my middle name. Uh, literally. And it's a word that I think means more than its definition can uh, really describe. The literal like dictionary.com definition of this is the free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. Um, but I think it's more than that. I think it's not necessarily religious. It's, it's more than that because that was a lot. But I, I, I think it... It's not exclusive to to religion or Christianity. It's about uh, forgiveness and it's about bigness of spirit and heart and uh, yeah, just genuine compassion for other people in a way that you want to bless them, right? Does that make sense? It does, yeah. No, I mean, I, I wanted you to clarify because you said yeah. it. I think another point in the episode, I really wanted to know what you meant by a moment of grace because yeah. of its religious connotations um, and because it's a word that some a lot of people use, but it's it's one of those words that, like you said, a little harder to pin down. Exactly, it's it's big. Um, but do you want to know something else really interesting about that word? Mm -hmm. Do you know what the name Hannah means? No, it means grace, um, which I think is really important also to this episode and to this series, mm -hmm. because June's first daughter, of course, is named Hannah. Uh, and for the entire series, the existence and the continued existence of this character of Hannah has been a prime motivator 
for June to keep going, to persevere, and to want to get out or to want to uh, work harder to change the systems of Gilead. And uh, there's a very important moment in this episode where June is waiting for her getaway car, holding her youngest daughter, Holly, and she pulls out a picture of her first daughter, Hannah, and reminisces on singing Hannah a little song. And it echoes an episode in an earlier um, moment of the season when June is about to get out of Gilead. She's about to get on that plane. She's running through the woods, and she's like, this is my escape. She thinks about Hannah, and she says, I have to leave Hannah behind, and chooses to get out so that she can save her coming baby and so that she can save herself. Of course, that is a botched escape attempt. This time, when she's about to escape and she thinks about Hannah, she realizes that she can't leave Hannah behind, that she has to turn back and she has to save that thing that kept her going. And this, Hannah, Grace, is what's going to save June, is what's going to be June's salvation, is what is going to change Gilead. Mind blown. Yeah. Mind, mind blown. Um, I totally agree that when she chooses to leave Gilead early in the season, I think it's episode one, it might be episode two, I don't remember, and she says, I have to leave Hannah, and she ends up not escaping. Yeah. And she ends up getting right back to where she began. And um, we're at that same precipice, but this time she chooses, I must, I have to say goodbye to my baby so I can save my other child. Yeah. Um, Knowing that Nicole will ultimately, hopefully, you know, optimistically speaking, get out of Gilead and be able to grow up in a safe environment. She has another child that she also needs to save from Gilead. I think that choice is the choice that will ultimately, hopefully, I hope and pray the Handmaids have a tale, yeah. ends on a happy note, because yeah. if not, because it's really rough. Yeah. But it's really, really sad. It, yeah. Uh, so I totally agree with that that theme, and I think you nailed it in your analysis, in particular linking Hannah, which means grace, to the idea that... Yeah. Giving a blessing, giving, understanding the bigness of things and human endeavors and understanding the inherent meaning in your choices, that June's choice to stay in Gilead and endure more suffering and more torture and more problems, but have the chance to get Hannah out was her making the right choice. It's a triumphant choice because she's making this out of having just seen the kindness and just seen the selflessness that women and men can tap into when they fight for each other. So Nick fought and Commander Lawrence fought. And even across the gender lines, there is intersectionality. Uh, And because she can give a fighting chance to now two people that she loves in Emily and in Holly slash Nicole, Nicole, who she chooses to name after, uh, you know, the grace that Serena has shown her. It's because she has newfound faith that Gilead will fall because there is love and compassion on every single level of Gilead. Absolutely. Um, We're pushing up on time. Did you want to go to final thoughts? I want to say one thing about Aunt Lydia. Do it. 
because we didn't really touch on her this episode and we don't There's so much to talk about with Aunt Lydia. We too. don't really know Aunt Lydia's fate at the end of this, but we cannot assume that it is good. We didn't see her take a final breath or give a death rattle, but Lydia has been literally stabbed in the back by Emily. And I just want to say, while we talked about Serena not being redeemed and Serena taking one step forward to take two steps back in her, uh, you know, her oppression of other women. Lydia is a character who I think there is a special place in hell for. And while this season at times teased us with uh, some levels of sympathy for that character and some, uh, some slight moments of cracks in her armor, uh, this is a character who is, to borrow a Gileadian term, a true gender traitor who continues to hold other women down because of her own internalized hatred. And so I actually want to call Emily's uh, stabbing of her a heroic act and a fight back against women who won't help other women. But I'm interested to know if you agree with that. Oh, man. So, okay. Wow. Sorry to open up a total can of worms here at the end. So, yeah, new, new, new topic of conversation. One of the things that I love the What Handmaid's Tale does in contrast to other mega hits and super serialized dramas that we have seen, shows like The Sopranos, The Wires, Game of Thrones. One of the things that The Handmaid's Tale does completely differently is it doesn't glorify violence. Right. Whereas the others do. And sometimes I like it. So I'm not saying glorifying violence is necessarily wrong or necessarily right. I'm just saying that in The Handmaid's Tale, I like that violence is gritty, it's real, it hurts. It's painful. The people that feel the violence, you feel it with them, right? It's often not a triumphant battle in which someone that you want to see defeat an enemy defeats the enemy by stabbing them in the heart. You don't feel good about it. I don't feel good about Emily stabbing Lydia. Sure. It, it, it hurt. It hurt me. It hurts me in the respect that I don't like seeing a character, Emily, who we got so much of her backstory walk that like line of psychopathy, seeing that she is near the total breaking point and knowing that the way that she actualizes that breaking point is in fact hurting other women. Yeah. Um, which is she murders another woman earlier in the season. Yeah. In a commander's wife who was sent to the colonies, a character that was legitimately deserving of sympathy. Uh, Emily straight up just murders. Mm. Um, while I can understand Emily's anger and rage and think it's 100% justified, the, the journey and progression that she goes through is that Emily's character actually does need to learn forgiveness. Yeah. And the, the lesson of Gilead is that while there are very few innocents, almost no one is, uh, there are, everyone is a victim. Yes. Lydia is a victim. Yes. Nick is a victim. Eden's a victim, um, and and that a oppressive totalitarian theocracy turns everyone is a victim of that because um, it crushes the human spirit. It turns people against each other. It allows a father to sell out his daughter to yeah. be executed to the cops. And Lydia's role is to psychologically torture, manipulate, and hurt people. 
And um, that's fucking terrible. Like, yeah. if Gilead really existed and fell and there were trials for war crimes, Lydia would be executed for war crimes. Oh, yeah. Right? She is a mass torturer. But what the show served to do is to show a human side to even that. Mm-hmm. So I don't see her- heroism. I see a really broken character in Emily at her last stance trying to do some act of defiance. I don't think when I watch it with the way I think it's shot, I don't think it's meant to feel heroic or brave. Sure. Yeah. Like a a hero doesn't stab someone in the back. A coward does that. And yeah, that's, that's something that she did. And yeah, Lydia fucking deserves it. You know, like I don't have any sympathy. She doesn't have redemption to me. Um, I don't feel like it's an act of heroism. I feel more that it is the pure cost that a college professor who misses her wife and son Mm -hmm. is now moved to murder for what the third or fourth time because of what this world has put her through. It's not heroic. To me, it's tragic. Yeah. I deeply, deeply appreciate that perspective. Um, and I thank you for letting me open up that can of worms here at the end of the episode because I thought it was important to at least address what happened to Lydia and for both sides of that argument to come to light on this episode. So thank you for that. I mean, and I, I agree that you know there's a special place in hell for Lydia. Yeah. Sure. I totally agree with that. But I, I just, I can't, like, it's going to sound weird. So when Osama bin Laden was killed by America, I felt mm-hmm. like, yeah, that guy deserved it. I am not going to shed a tear, but like, but I'm people, not going to celebrate it. People were going out in the streets and celebrating. Yeah. I'm like, a man still died. Right. Like I, I don't want to party because I'm he, not going to like look for pictures of it. Yeah. No, I, you know, I like, agree. I you know, agree. so like, I'm not going to celebrate it. Yes. It had to happen. And yes, it's just, and yes, it's just that Lydia got stabbed in the back, but I can't feel good about watching a great character become a great person rather become a murderer, mm-hmm. you know, like, or an attempted murderer. Like, I just don't want to celebrate that because it's not like this is an action adventure where it's like sword fights and, you know, kill the the yeah. enemy. If it were star Wars, it'd be different. If that makes any sense. I got you. No, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. Final, uh, final thoughts. Uh, yeah. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You go first. Guys, a lot of change is happening. These last two episodes were inspired by change. If there's one thing Handmade Season 2 taught me is you can change for the positive, we can change for the worse. The reality is the power is actually ours. We just need to use it. And let's take a moment and link arm to arm, hand to hand, eye to eye with our fellow humans in this mess called being alive and let's look at each other and just give each other a chance, give each other some love, pat each other on the back. Let's throw this tribal us versus them nature out because if it's always us versus them, who knows who's going to come on top because it could be the neo fucking Nazis. Yeah. It might be the hippies, but it might (laughs) be the neo Nazis. Yeah. And then we're in Gilead. So let's try our very best to just be compassionate and kind and patient and loving towards each other, maybe we will start making this a little bit of a better place. 
I don't know. Um, final thoughts. In the intro to every episode, we ask, what is the perfect story? Does it exist? And uh, in every conversation we'd have, we've ever sat down to have, we're really trying to get at what in our stories is uh, so endurable and so powerful and so potent that it reaches down deep within us. And I truly think that the perfect story is one that makes all of its choices purposefully, that has intent behind everything that happens, behind every character and every choice that they make. And, uh, and every consequence of that is not only uh, important and intentional to the world of the story, but to our world. Uh, and The Handmaid's Tale gives us a story where nothing is lost, nothing is unintentional, and nothing is accidental, because nothing in our world is accidental. Uh, every single choice that we make reverberates throughout time and space and leads to the world that we create. So my kind of plea here is to be mindful of our choices, to be intentional with our actions, and to cross those lines, to reach across uh, the, the borders that we have built within ourselves, uh, and to intentionally take someone else's hand and show them a moment of grace. And until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.